Good morning, church. Uh, As part of this Naturally Supernatural series, we've been spending the last few weeks looking at the rocks, those attitudes of our heart that can so easily block the flow of the river of the Spirit that Jesus talked about uh, in our own lives and also in the church. And so we've looked at the rocks of things like disappointment, disappointment with God, where we allow that to come into our heart and, and we allow it to take root that can really block the flow of the spirit in our lives. Uh, The rocks of unbelief and and cynicism, self-reliance, fear, judgment. And I mean, these are massive areas. I don't know about you, but I've certainly been mightily challenged in each one of those areas. There there are still some rocks here and a lot of spiritual heart surgery uh, still needed in here. Now, these are all attitudes of the heart that when we become aware of them, we need to repent. We need to repent and ask God to help us remove them. And the last rock that we're coming to today, well, it's heavily linked to all the others. There are big areas of overlap between all of these different heart attitudes. Each one feeds into some of the others. And so today we're looking at the rock of control, the rock of control, not self-control. That's different. Self-control is a good thing. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. It's the opposite of being out of control, which is not a good thing, being out of control. Um, We need to exercise self-control in all sorts of areas of life, in in how we use money, uh, what we eat, what we drink, how we use our words. That's a a big one, what we put on social media. Self-control is a good thing. But what I'm talking about today is a negative kind of control, a spirit of control that can be there in our hearts and it can cause us to miss out on God's best for us, and therefore on what we're able to give out to those around us, because we need to receive from God to be able to give out. We need to receive the Spirit for this river of living water to flow from within us. And probably one of the best examples uh, to help us understand this spirit of control a bit more is to look at the Pharisees. So I'm going to read from Matthew 12, uh, verses 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is one of those, one of several occasions where the Pharisees challenged Jesus and his disciples, claiming that they were breaking the religious law. So in this case, they saw the fact that the disciples were picking these ears of corn, these grains uh, to eat. They saw that as working on the Sabbath, which was illegal. And of course, Jesus pointed out to them, well, look, others have broken the Sabbath when necessary. It's written in in the scriptures. You know about that. And the Sabbath isn't a stick to beat people with. It's a kindness of God. 
And anyway, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, so he gets to decide what can and can't be done. And then just a few verses later, the debate has slightly shifted, but it's, it's a debate now about whether it's lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath. There's this man with a, a shriveled hand and, you know, they're saying, they're watching Jesus closely and, and you know, saying, is it lawful to heal someone? And, and Jesus effectively says to them, well, of course it's lawful. Of course it is. I mean, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you would rescue it. You wouldn't wait for the next day. You'd rescue it because that's the right thing to do. And you're going to judge me for healing this man, for doing good to this man who's far more valuable than a sheep. And Jesus heals him. And the Pharisees are furious. They're furious and they start plotting how they might kill Jesus. And what's the problem? You know, what is that all about? Well, I think at the heart of it, is this spirit of religious control about the Pharisees that Jesus came up against again and again. There's a religious control that, that takes God's intention to bring life and to bring freedom and it twists it into bondage. And Jesus really let the Pharisees have it in Matthew 23. He, he unleashes this verbal attack on them that really exposes the effects of this religious control, what this heart, this spirit, this attitude of religious control, what it leads to. And so he calls them in, in Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites. Woe to you, hypocrites. You're a hypocrite because, because you burden people with religious instruction and impossible standards that they don't even keep themselves. I mean, we would never do anything like that, would we? <laughs> Just listen to Rich's talk from last week to, to hear a bit more about that. But he calls them hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs, this, this outer appearance of godliness and purity, but with a rotten core, with death at the core. He accused them of being more concerned about looking good to people than about how God saw them, that they twisted scripture to their own ends, that they, they missed and they minimized the things that are most important to God, things like justice and mercy, and they maximized the least important things, the details of the law rather than the spirit of the law. And in essence, Jesus is telling them that they might think that they're acting for God, but in reality, they're opposing the kingdom of God through this spirit of religious control. Because religious control, it wants the freedom that God offers. It wants the power that God offers, but on its own terms. Now, it's easy to write the Pharisees off as the kind of the pantomime villains. You know, these, these secretive, conspiring figures wearing dark cloaks, uh, whispering to each other furtively. It's easy to write them off as that. But actually, the reality is the Pharisees wanted a move of God. They were praying for that. They were desperate for God to set his people free and restore Israel to its former glory. But they missed it. They completely missed it. Listen to what it says here in Luke chapter 7 and verses 29 to 30. It says, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. I mean, how tragic is that? What a tragic verse to have in the Bible. Utterly tragic. They wanted God to move. And it says there, God had purposes for them. I mean, how differently things might have gone for the Pharisees. God had purposes for them, but they missed it. They rejected it because it came in the wrong packaging. 
John the Baptist was not what they were expecting. Jesus was not what they were expecting. They wanted God to move, but on their terms, in ways that they expected, ways that they were comfortable with. But this sense of religious control, it didn't stop with the Pharisees. So Jesus had to rebuke Peter for resisting God's plan or or trying to do that because Peter felt he had a better idea of what path Jesus should be following. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Martha, she was gently rebuked for, for making herself busy with things that Jesus hadn't even asked for and then trying to manipulate him into getting Mary to help her. She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Don't you care about that? It's very manipulative. Tell her to help me. She had minimised what was important, spending time with Jesus, learning from Jesus, and she had maximised the less important things of getting tasks done, of being busy for Jesus on things that he hadn't asked her to do. And Judas, his heart was certainly exposed when he saw the woman who poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet in this extravagant act of worship, but he saw it as a waste. On the surface, he said, well, it's because the money could have been given to the poor. He's being very, very pious. In reality, we know that it's because he wanted the money for himself. But regardless of the reason, he missed the beauty. He missed the beauty of the act of worship because it was done, in his eyes, in the wrong way. Now, if that spirit of control spread among even Jesus' closest followers, then it will undoubtedly be present in us and in the church. Now, I know that I can be a bit of a control freak, Um, And I can almost hear the people I work with saying, a bit. Um, I like plans. I do. I like things to be planned. I like things to be mapped out. I like strategy. Um, I know not everyone's like that, but that's me. And, And that can be a great strength. It can also be a great weakness. But I get a picture in my head of how I think things should look or how I see a day panning out. And again, my wife will recognize this very much because I then get a bit grumpy when something changes or when something's out of my control, which is most days. But I can do that with God as well. A bit like Peter did. No, Lord, that that's not what you should be doing. It'd be so much better if you did it this way. This is what you should do. Or if you did it in this time frame, you know, assuming that I know better than God, that I can somehow control God. I mean, I wonder how many of us do that as well. But this can also come into the church. We, we can be just as religious as any other church. We form our own liturgies. We form our own ways of doing things that we then come to assume are the right ways of doing things. You know, this, this is what good preaching looks like. This is what real worship looks like. This is what a good church meeting looks like. But what if God wants to shake us up? What if God wants us to find a greater freedom in worship that will have a transforming effect on our lives? It will have a transforming effect on our relationship with him and on our church and on our town as we reach out. But it means getting a bit uncomfortable for a while to find that greater freedom. Do we risk missing that because we don't want to be uncomfortable? We want to control our environment. We want to plan everything. And don't get me wrong, planning is good. As I said before, planning is good. Structure is good. We, we plan things diligently here at King's, but we mustn't be enslaved to the planning. Do we risk missing what God is doing because it comes in the wrong packaging? Because it comes in a way that we're not entirely comfortable with. I became a Christian in 1994 
And at that time, and many of you will will remember this who've been around for some time, at that time, many churches across the world, including here at King's, uh, were experiencing a move of God, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it was it was impossible to have a, a normal meeting because as God started to move and, and touch people, I mean, you'd just be starting off in worship or, or somebody start preaching, but God would start to do things in the room. You know, and you, you would have some people erupting in laughter and, and being filled with the joy of the Lord, you know, during other parts of the meeting, not in the kind of the allotted response time but just as somebody starts speaking and others would be falling to the floor. Others would be weeping. I, I was a bit of a weeper, to be honest, but it was kind of, it was chaos. I, I seem to recall there was one meeting where someone actually became a bit ill. They had a bit of a funny turn and paramedics were, were called, but when they came in the room, there were bodies all over the floor. And it's like, which one is it? Which one do you want us to treat? It was messy. It really was very messy. It was different. And it was wonderful. It really was amazing. Now, not everybody liked it. Not everybody took to that. Some were deeply uncomfortable and could produce theological reasoning for their scepticism. And undoubtedly, there were excesses. Some things happening which were of more of human origin than of God's origin. Not all of it was God, but most of it was. Most of it was, and I know that there were many, many people, myself included, who were profoundly touched by God, experiencing a new freedom, a deeper revelation of sonship. It was wonderful. But at that time, for the leaders at the time, there was a choice to either let God do what he wanted to do, even with all the mess that that involved and the questions that it raised, or try to control it and lean into our desire for God's presence to be tidy and controlled and restricted and then potentially miss what he was doing because it was in the wrong packaging. Thankfully, we went with it. Thankfully, we let God do what he wanted to do. And here's the thing, when God moves in power, it doesn't tend to be tidy and controlled. On the day of Pentecost, the crowd thought the disciples were drunk that wasn't tidy and controlled. They thought they were off their heads, completely drunk. Every major move of God in history has been criticized for some sort of excess, whether it's to do with speaking in tongues or shaking and groaning and, and falling on the floor. So there was a revival in this nation in the 18th century, became known as the Great Awakening. And all of those kinds of things were going on as people were touched by God. And it was viewed with great skepticism by many, a, a kind of hysterical, excessive reaction, including one of the main preachers of the time, George Whitfield, who was very concerned about these, these manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And, but here's something that John Wesley, who, who was also a central figure in that revival, here's something John Wesley recorded in his diary. He said, I had an opportunity to talk with Whitfield of those outward signs, which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. I found that his objections were chiefly grounded on gross misrepresentations of matter of fact. But the next day he had an opportunity of informing himself better, for no sooner had he begun in the application of his sermon to invite all sinners to believe in Christ than four persons sunk down close to him almost in the same moment. One of them lay without either sense or motion. A second trembled exceedingly. The third had strong convulsions all over his body, but made no noise unless by groans. The fourth, equally convulsed, 
called upon God with strong cries and tears. From this time, this is what Wesley said, from this time I trust, we shall all suffer God to carry on his own work in the way that pleaseth him. Let's just accept that God is going to do what he wants to do in the way he wants to do it. If we want the Holy Spirit to move in power, which I trust that we do, because we need his power to reach this town. If we want the Holy Spirit to move when we say, come Holy Spirit, well, first, we must be willing to move when he says come. We must be willing to be obedient to what God calls us to do and to let him do it in his way, even if that's uncomfortable and messy to us. Now, conversely, before everyone gets a bit worried, it's not an excuse to abandon wisdom and abandon discernment and just say, well, anything goes, because, of course, not every manifestation is from God. You know, there can be other sources of these, of these manifestations. So it's not a case of anything goes, but neither must we let a spirit of control masquerade as wisdom and discernment. So here's how a Christian author called Charles Hummel puts it. He says, we must have the fire. You know, we, we must have the fire of the spirit. We want that. We must have the fire. But if it is to be productive rather than destructive, it must exist in the fireplace. It is no good to have the fire burning in the living room out of control. Neither is the answer a dead hearth with embers. But let us remember the fireplace exists to serve the fire and not the other way around. We need to let go of control and let God do what he wants to do in the way he wants to do it, but retain the wisdom of that fireplace. But it's a fireplace that serves the fire, structures and plans that serve the fire and doesn't quench it. Our theology, it shouldn't be so neat and so tidy that it explains everything. There's got to be room for mystery. There's got to be room for things that are confusing and awe-inspiring and, and inexplicable and often challenging and uncomfortable if we want God to move among us. The thing is, is that this spirit of control has been kind of wired into us since the fall. I mean, just look at our society in the West. The West does not do chaos well. We want to control our environment. We have a desire for a safe, well-planned, bureaucratic, health and safety world where things are predictable or we have insurance for those things that are not predictable. And so when this disruption that we've been th living through recently, when that sort of thing comes along, we, we really don't know how to cope with it. That feeling of being out of control or being controlled by something else, we can't cope with it. Now, in the beginning, back in the book of Genesis, in creation, God told us, he told humans to have dominion over the earth. But it was always meant to be dominion and dependency on God, dominion with dependency. But when sin came in, we just went for dominion, believing that we can dominate and control nature until we realize that actually we can't. But the secular story, the secular narrative is one of, of trying to control, trying to control everything. Is the ide ideology of individualism, being in control of your own life. And it's a story of living life without God and relying on human progress to make the world better, to be in control, to have dominion. And, you know, we might preach in the church against those kinds of things, but actually how much have we bought into it? How much have we actually bought into that secular narrative where human effort and human endeavor 
is what is needed to solve the problems of the world. That's enough for all the problems we face. And just working harder to bring God's kingdom is what will make it happen. Again, we might not believe that narrative in our heads, but what do our lives actually show? What does the church actually show? Do our lives and the way that we do church together, does that tell a story of complete dependency on God or does it tell a story of control without dependency? And I think a big clue is in how, how much do you pray? How desperate are your prayers? How much do we need God to show up? And we need to replace a spirit of control with a spirit of humility and dependency on God. And you know what? We, we have an amazing opportunity. We live in a unique time where normal church life and all our ways of doing things have been completely disrupted. And we actually have a chance to think about the church differently. We've got a chance to try new things and to release creativity, to take some risks, to not have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed and kind of makes me nervous even as I say it but to recognize that Jesus is building his church and his plans are the best. And we've talked a lot in the last few months about emerging from the cocoon. There was a prophetic word that was brought about emerging from the cocoon. But you know what? I don't know. I don't know what color, what size, what shape, what type of butterfly will emerge. Only God knows that. All I know is that he's spoken to us here at King's about surrounding and saturating this town with the love of Jesus. I want his strategies in place to do that. I mean, you know, we can work hard at planning and strategizing and, and that's good. You know, I love strategy. God can work through our strategy. He can work through our plans. But really, kingdom strategy is discovered on our knees. And that's why prayer and fasting are so important. That's why we're calling the church to this, to pray and fast together, to get into that rhythm together. It's so important we do it as a church, seeking God together for the next steps. We need to press into the spirit, cry out for a move of God, having the humility to lay our plans down, to realize that we actually have no power we need his power, putting ourselves in his hands, remembering that he is a loving father who we can trust and who wants the very best for us. Instead of trying to pretend that we're in control of everything, we come to Jesus, one who genuinely did have control, but he willingly chose to lay it down, to allow wicked men to nail him to a cross so that we could know freedom. Are we hungry for more of him? in our lives and in our church? Are we hungry for more freedom? Are we hungry for more power from God, even if that comes in different packaging that we're not expecting? Now, why is this important? It's important because we are called to live naturally supernatural lives. We're called to live the life that Jesus modeled and to bring the kingdom of God into the lives of those around us. And we need the power of God for that. Just listen to what Jesus says uh, here in, in Mark chapter four about the kingdom. He said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, that he does not know how. He doesn't know how because he's not in control of that. We're not in control of that. Only God can actually make that seed grow. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk and then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it 
because the harvest has come. It's God who causes the seed to grow. It's his power. It's God who brings the harvest, but he calls us to be the ones to scatter the seed. And do you know what? I reckon that some hard hearts have been ploughed over this last year to produce soil that is ready to receive that seed. That the, the fear, the disruption that people have experienced, the shaking of that secular story of living life without God, the shaking of those foundations that so many people's lives were based upon, it will have produced good receptive soil. And you know, what if, what if seeds of renewal are being laid in secular soil right now? What if this is a moment that God wants to turn things around in this nation? What if this is a moment that people will look back to in the future and say that, that is when that great awakening began in this nation? We don't want to miss it. We do not want to miss it. And so let's deal with the rocks of disappointment, of unbelief, of self-reliance, of fear, of judgment, let's deal with those rocks in our hearts so that the river of the Spirit can flow freely in us and through us, equipping us to love others and to bring the kingdom, to scatter the seed of the kingdom. And let us remove the rock of control, recognizing our dependency on God and crying out to him to move in whatever way he wants to, whatever way he deems fit, to shape the church in whatever way he wants to. Let us be good clay in the potter's hands. Let us be hungry and humble, always, always living to say yes to him.